And as you're seated, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel. We're in 2 Samuel 16 and 17 this morning. It's good to be back up here uh, after enjoying with you, uh, enjoying the preaching from Trent and Ron in the last few weeks in the book of Titus. And today we return to a series that we hit pause on, uh, I guess, mid-December or so. And Lord willing, we'll spend today and then the next five weeks finishing our study of the book of 2 Samuel, leading us right up to our Claris Conference at the beginning of March. I'm sure we all very well know that experience of watching a movie at home and then halfway through, a family member comes and joins us, sits down, and if they haven't seen the movie before, they do what? They start asking questions. They will catch themselves up on the story by asking 20 questions. Who's that guy? Who's that girl? Are they together? And What's that thing? Is, is, that, is that guy good or bad? What do you mean, kind of? Right? It's frustrating to have a movie interrupted with those questions. We've all been there. I'm sure many of us have also at times been on the other end. We didn't mean to, but we came in late, and we, we want to find out what's going on, who's who, what's what. That's the nature of stories. They draw us in. They expect and want us to figure things out, to figure out who's who and what's what. Some stories are complicated enough, though, that we, we give up. We turn off the TV. We close the book. We, we say, I can't keep it all straight, and, and we move along. I remember years ago, I read a review of the movie Miracle about the 1980 USA hockey team that beat Russia and then got the gold medal the game later. I love that movie. I love that story. I grew up playing hockey. Uh, I have books on that team and have read them. And I think that's one of the best sports movies of all time, Miracle. Watch it if you haven't seen it. But this reviewer of the movie hated it because he or she said, uh, there are too many characters who all sound similar and look too similar to distinguish and keep it all straight. I was thinking, well, if you watch it as many times as I have, they actually seem like your cousins. Like, you know everyone. You know what that guy likes for lunch. And, and, uh, but I understand. I understand there are a lot of people in it. Hard to distinguish. That reviewer, I think, if he or she were here this morning, would not like this sermon. Because 2 Samuel 16 and 17 is not only jumping into the middle of a story, or even three-quarters the way through a story, but it contains a barrage of names, many unfamiliar and funny-sounding names. There are about two dozen names in these two chapters. Then there are several other unnamed people who are part of the story. But it's not an optional story for us to dismiss because there are too many characters or it's hard to keep straight. This is God's story. This is God's word. And it is a living and active word still today. And God calls his people not just to read it, like get through it, but to study it and seek to understand it or to apply it and live in light of it. And so God gives pastors and teachers in the church to help us understand it better. 
I've been helped by others this week as I've tried to understand these chapters, and I hope to be of help to you today as we try to understand it and apply it to our lives. So let me first help us out by reducing the story with two dozen names in it to simply two characters. At the top are simply two characters, two kings. One is the real king, one is a trumped up king. There's King David and his son. King David is a good king. He has a heart for God. He's God's man of the hour in God's plan. But we've learned in recent chapters that he's not perfect. He has sinned, and he sinned greatly. And so he was confronted, he repented, he was forgiven, but there are consequences for those sins. And in this case, there are grave consequences. God will chastise him in multiple ways, one of which is that his house will be divided from here on out. That leads to the second king, who is the present source of division for David. It's David's son, Absalom. He's raised up a mutiny against his father. It's now a full-blown coup d'etat with the, the vast majority of the Israelite army siding with Absalom and not the King David. David has fled the royal palace. He's out of Jerusalem. He's on the run with only a small troop of soldiers and followers going with him. 2 Samuel 15 looks like the older days of David back in 1 Samuel, where he's on the run. His life's in the balance, humanly speaking. Despite God's grand promises and his anointing to be king eventually, it seems uncertain and far off. But just like those days when David was on the run from a different, desperate, relentless, would-be king, King Saul, David here too is trusting his God, praying to his God, writing worship songs to his God. That brings us to the end of 2 Samuel 15. And now the high drama between father and son and between their two kingdoms continues. It escalates. They are kingdoms in conflict. And so everyone else in the story of chapter 16 and 17 they are there either falling on one side or the other of the David-Absalom divide. Another way to help us deal with the barrage of unfamiliar names in these chapters is simply to know that there are five primary movers and shakers. It's not just two dozen names, but there are five primary movers and shakers which relate in some way to David and or Absalom. And the first is a man named Ziba. The first man with a funny name is Ziba. Let's read this first scene, the first four verses, David and Ziba. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? 
Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. And the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. Well, here we're reintroduced to Ziba. Ziba, the two-faced manipulator. We were first introduced to Ziba back in chapter 9, and there he didn't look so bad. Back in chapter 9, David wanted to bless someone from the house of Saul, and he found Mephibosheth crippled. And so he decided to give Mephibosheth all of Saul's land and all of Saul's house and all of Saul's cattle and fields. And he put Ziba who was Saul's chief of staff at one point, in charge over Mephibosheth's house and land and people and stuff. And Ziba responded greatly to it. He submitted himself to the king. He honored the king. And he took his assignment for Mephibosheth with humility and grace. Now in chapter 16, at first, it isn't clear who has moved in a bad direction. Is it, as Ziba says, And Mephibosheth is now conspiring to get the kingdom back in the Saul line? Or is Ziba slandering Mephibosheth, using him as a pawn to gain his possessions? Well, if we would fast forward to chapter 19, we would see there that it's clear that it's the latter. Ziba here is a two-faced manipulator portraying himself to be utterly loyal to the throne and to the preservation of the Davidic throne. But in reality, he's playing David. He's buying David. He's stealing from a crippled man that the king wanted to bless. He's likely taking advantage of the turmoil that David and his kingdom is in right now. David wouldn't be able to go and check out this story. He wasn't in Jerusalem. He had no idea how Mephibosheth was doing or what he may or may not have been conspiring. And so David, he's got other things to do. He settles it abruptly or even hastily, and he settles it wrongly, at least for now. What motivated Ziba? To do what he did here? Well, it's good old-fashioned greed, isn't it? It's wanting the stuff. You're in the stuff, but it's not yours. It's close by, but you can't have it. Maybe it's also resentment. Looking at a crippled man. He serves the crippled man, and the man can't even serve anyone else. He wants it for himself. We hate two-faced people, don't we? We we hate when we see two-facedness in others. We hate when we see people manipulate like this with candy, with gifts for their own greed. We hate greed when we see it in others. Much harder to spot those things in ourselves, isn't it? We're much more comfortable with our own versions of two-facedness and manipulation and greed. But let us beware. It's there. It's ugly when we see it in others. It's just as ugly in us. We just are biased. We see it with rose-colored 
rose-colored glasses. But let us beware of greed and resentment and bitterness. And let us beware of even playing a kind of Zeba-like role with God. That's still possible even today, and it's still possible for Christians or professing Christians to pretend to side with God for their own benefit. Some preachers are even all about God for the financial benefit. Know that unlike David in this story, God cannot be manipulated like that. He knows all and he sees all. Don't be a Zeba. Secondly, let me introduce you to Shimei, the next guy with a funny name. In verse 5 of chapter 16, when King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gerah. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men who were on his right hand and his left. And Shammai said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged you, avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you've reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. And Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he's cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone? Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shemai went along on the hillside opposite him, and cursed as he went, and threw stones at him, and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him, arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. Secondly, here we meet Shammai, the seething reviler. Shammai, the seething reviler. David and all his soldiers, his men, his followers, they were nomads for the time. They were leaving Jerusalem, heading northeast toward the Jordan, they traveled maybe 10 miles or so, maybe 15, before they'd gotten to a place where they, all of a sudden, were introduced to, or who introduced himself to them, this guy Shemai from the family of Saul, who must have been anti-David from the get-go. He knows nothing of the Bathsheba incident. He just simply knows that he's a Saulite and David isn't. And this guy assumes that the rumors he's heard about David taking out people in the family of Saul, that they don't take a claim or, or pose any risk for the throne in the future, he's believing those rumors, but they're not true. David has not done that. He is a man of blood, you could say. He's shed the blood of many, but not those of the house of Saul. 
He sought to protect them and to do them good. And yet this man, with anger and resentment and bitterness bubbling up like a volcano in, within him, he, he's seething. He's a cursing man. He, he follows them, get this, 10 miles, cursing, hurling stones, and flinging dirt. He didn't know, of course, not only that David was innocent, but that this was the plan of God all along. That yes, Absalom had for a time grasped the throne and the kingdom. And David knew it was because of his guilt. And that's what leads David to say what he says. Back in chapter 12, God said through Nathan the prophet that the sword will not depart from your house and I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. David also knew God's forgiveness. That was there in chapter 7 as well. David also knew of God's promises that his house would be made sure forever. And yet, he also knew of the chastisement that would come and wasn't sure exactly what that would look like. That's what makes sense of David saying what he does. Not, yes, let's get this guy and get him to shut up. But, no, 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 let it go. I mean, after all, my son wants to kill me. No surprise that a Benjaminite from the line of Saul wants to hurl insults at me. But Shimei, of course, understands none of that, and probably some of his men didn't as well. David knows that chastisement is needed in his life, that God has promised it, doesn't know exactly what it will look like, and on the other hand, he's more hopeful than just that. He's not fatalistic. Verse 12, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. Does that sound familiar? Now, Jesus, a thousand years after David, David's greater son, uh, he was less ambivalent about his persecution he was more certain about why it was happening and how it was going to go than uh, David was less certain than Jesus was. But there are important similarities between these two Davids, David and his son, Jesus. You see, in 1 Peter 2, Peter tells us that when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That, according to Peter, is our salvation hope, the cross of Jesus Christ, his rejection for us. He himself was bearing our sins upon the tree. It's through his wounds that we are healed, Peter says. And yet, Peter can also say that the cross and the suffering of Christ and the way he endured it can be an example for us as well. It's not just our salvation. That's first and foremost, but it is also an example Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. It's simply what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
and not just the prophets, some of the kings as well, the great King David as well. So we Christians were walking on the road with the Lord's anointed, the king, the king who became a curse. He came into this world to bear the curse, let alone be cursed. And so when the world curses him, and it still does, they curse us too. At least we hope that they do. Because we don't want to be ashamed of him here and now and then find out that he is ashamed of us at his coming. Instead, we want to be willing and bold and confident to identify with him and to keep walking with him no matter what is said and for how long or what they throw. Hebrews tells us, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And there is a city to come. And curses and stones and even death itself cannot take away your home, Christian, your destiny, and the one to whom you go to. What did all of Shemai's reviling and rock-slinging bring about? Nothing. Nothing, in a sense, nothing. Yes, they arrived weary. See verse 14, they were weary from the travel itself. Even wearied more, no doubt, by the miles and hours of reviling and rocks. But when David and his people arrived at the Jordan, there he refreshed himself. He refreshed himself. He needed refreshing, but that's it. He refreshed himself. Sticks and stones may break our, bone, break our bones, but names will never hurt us. That saying is most often not true. And sometimes it rings true. Here's one, right? Even his sticks and stones didn't really do anything. David said in Psalm 56, it's in God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? It's as if he could have said in this moment, what can Shemai do to me? So if the world curses us, let us keep reminding ourselves, what can they do to me? Who can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? David refreshed himself, but just when you've weathered a storm of words and stones, and you've come out the other side a little weary, but refreshed and okay, just when one trial comes to an end, and you think you've earned a season of rest and refreshment, Sometimes a second and third wave is billowing on the horizon. You can't see it yet, but it's coming. And that's the case with David. While he was refreshing himself, verse 15, Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with them. He entered Jerusalem for the first time as the would-be king. This was his triumphal entry. Remember, David and his men, they have fled Jerusalem. And Absalom enters the city with no obstacles whatsoever. It was in his mind and no doubt in the eyes of the people, the new king taking his city. And he has Ahithophel with him. Who is Ahithophel? 
Well, he was back in the last chapter, chapter 15. There we learned that it was David's trusted counselor. Look back there, chapter 15, verse 12. Absalom was offering the sacrifices, and he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Then skip to verse 31. It was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, Oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So who is Ahithophel? Thirdly, Ahithophel, the shameless betrayer. The shameless betrayer. His betrayal in the last chapter was bad enough. Going from maybe chief of staff or secretary of state in the cabinet of David to siding with the enemy. And it gets worse. Look at verse 20 and following. Chapter 16, verse 20. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel. What shall we do? What shall we do now? What's next? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father. And the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went in to his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel of Ahithophel, that, that Ahithophel gave, was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and Absalom. Keep reading into chapter 17 where we see another recommendation from Ahithophel. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will call, come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Here we have two treacherous schemes against David. There's the concubine campaign and then there's the killing campaign. The concubine campaign was more than just rape for rape's sake or sex for sex's sake. It was a message. It was meant to communicate to all Israel and to David that Absalom is now undeniably the king. He not only has the palace, he has the women. He has all that the king had because he is now the king. This is meant to communicate to the nation that there's now no going back, no reconciliation possible between father and son. They must choose sides. There's no on the fence or waiting for what's next. You must either align yourself with the new regime or become an enemy of the state. And finally, this move with the concubines, even though Ahithophel didn't know it, and even though he was still accountable for his sin, nevertheless, he was bringing about what God had promised to David through the prophet Nathan as part of the chastisement for his sin. Again, back in chapter 12, Nathan said, 
David, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of his son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And sure enough, that's exactly what Ahithophel suggests. And that's exactly what Absalom does. Now, don't think for a minute that Ahithophel was not accountable for his sinful idea, nor that Absalom was guiltless for his sins against these women. Both men fully decided to do this. And yet, mysteriously, God had spelled it out in graphic detail long before it ever happened. And so they did it because because that was God's plan. He was using their sin, their sinful wills, for David's chastisement. We have to notice and underline and stress and and keep in proper proportion the sinfulness of these men in the righteous chastisement of God upon David for God's good eternal purposes. We'll come back to some of these things a little bit later. But then there's the killing campaign that Ahithophel schemes up in chapter 17. He suggests leading 12,000 soldiers that very night, not to hunt down David's army, but just David himself. It's efficient. It's quick. It's taking advantage of the fact that David needs refreshment. He's weary and possibly even discouraged. What treachery. Don't forget, this was David's close counselor. David likely wrote about Ahithophel in Psalm 41. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Surely Ahithophel could have been counted among the number that David was talking about in Psalm 3 around this time when he wrote, Oh, how many are rising up against me, O Lord. How many are my foes. So put yourself in David's shoes in these days. Your son has overtaken the capital city, the royal palace, the throne itself, the royal harem, and everybody knows it. And it would seem as though the only pro-David people that are out there are actually not out there, they're with you. And they too are being hunted. They're in the enemy's sights. What hope is there? Who is left? Well, God is there. And that's why David prayed as soon as he heard news that Ahithophel had gone to the other side. Back in chapter 15, verse 31, remember David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. But he didn't just pray. He also sent a covert man back into the enemy. Listen to verse 32 of chapter 15. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, new name, we'll get to him, the archite, he came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. And David said to him, if you go on with me, you'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, 
I'll be your servant, O king, as I've been your father's servant in time past. So now I will be your servant. Well, that's what we see in chapter 16 happening. Verses we skipped over there toward the end of chapter 16. We were focusing on Ahithophel. But look at verse 15 to 19. Now Absalom and all the people and the men of Israel came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite... David's friend. When he came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I've served your father, so I will serve you. So here at the end of chapter 16, and even more as we work into chapter 17, we observe Hushai, the righteous subverter. Fourth, Hushai, the righteous subverter. Of course, at first, his loyalty is questioned by Absalom. He was known not just as David's counselor, but David's friend. And why would he be in Jerusalem and not out with David? And his answer to that question is as clever as can be. Each of his lines can have a double meaning, a double intendment. I think that's the right word, right? Intendment. He cleverly doesn't use the names David or Absalom. He simply says king. In the proud, vain, <clears throat> can someone hand me some water? Thanks. Not preaching for a few weeks and then having a cold is a bad combination because my voice gets rough. Thanks. All right, I'm good enough now, but I, I will need water later, I'm sure. Uh, where was I? Each of his lines has two different things in mind depending on the ears of those who hear it. He says, long live the king. And full of himself, Absalom is sure. That's about him. He's the king. He says, I will serve the king that the Lord has chosen. Well, Hushai knows who that is. It's David, not Absalom. He says, shouldn't I serve the king's son? And he will one day. Just not this son. And then you get to the last line of things that Hushai said. He says, as I've served your father, so I will serve you. That's the ESV. But more literally, it's so I will be before you. As I've served your father, I'll be before you. Serving your father. Right now I am before you. Wink, still serving your father. Again, Absalom only hears himself. And it works. Now Hushai is a man on the inside. He's a double agent. In fact, he gets a, a page on the website of the CIA as maybe a, a, an early, if not the first example of a double agent. And now we can understand why these two characters, Ahithophel and Hushai, were mingled together at the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of 17. It's because they're both counselors. And it looks like they're both counselors on the same team, but we know differently. One's a double agent. 
So remember Ahithophel's counsel, the beginning of chapter 17, to to get 12,000 men and go that night to hunt David alone. Well, let's read on. Verse 5. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father, David, and his men are mighty men, and that they're enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is experienced in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he's hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And, it, and, soon, and as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, There's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even your valiant men, whose hearts are like the heart of a lion, they will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you, from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. See, we shall come upon him in some place where he's to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city... Then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Stop there. Hushai, the righteous subverter, and an answer to prayer. David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And then he sent Hushai into enemy territory to be the human means by which God might answer that prayer. And it worked. I mean, how is it that you get to the end of the story here, in verse 14 anyway, and in Absalom and all the men of Israel say the, the counsel of Hushai, the archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. We were just told at the end of the last chapter, in those days, Ahithophel's counsel was tantamount almost to the word of God. You don't question it. It works. He's really, really smart, really, really good. He's got the Midas touch. Everything he says turns to gold. So why would they even seek out a second counselor? Why would they get a second opinion? And why choose the Hushai plan over the Ahithophel plan? Was it really that much better? Well, in some ways it was. It was sneaky. It was remarkably cunning and clever. Hushai appealed to Absalom's pride. So Ahithophel, he said, I will go and get David. I will go and gather those people. Four times he said, I will. Absol or Hushai, rather, says to Absalom in verse 11, you should go into battle yourself. I mean, think about it. Absalom had never really been at the front of the army where the king goes. Absalom's, uh, Hushai is painting a picture for Absalom. Imagine you at the front. You taking 
the old king. You getting the people. Hushai appealed to his pride. He appealed to his fears. He reminded him of the David of old. This is now probably an old David, but Hushai doesn't talk about that. He says, are you kidding me, David? The man who slew his tens tens of thousands? You're just going to march in there and get him? You think you can find him? Do you think he won't kill everyone? He appealed to Absalom's greed. He paints a picture of the whole world following Absalom. He, he appeals to revenge. Let's not just go after David, but let's crush every single one of those dogs. And he had the more thorough plan. It's three times longer than, than the, the Ab, what is it? The names are confusing me now. <laughs> Who's that guy? Ahithophel. Ahithophel. Hushai's plan was three times longer. Maybe that looks more prepared and, and more thought out. But it was all clever deception, wasn't it? Which, by the way, apparently is permissible in times of war and when life is on the line. This isn't the only case of that in the Bible. There are actually three instances of it in our chapters today. You've got Rahab, who hid the spies, Jeremiah misleads government officials when life is on the line. David himself feigned insanity once to get out of uh, trouble and gaff. So it's okay that he did this. And on one hand, we can understand how it worked. Humanly speaking, it was good. And yet there's another explanation in the passage that we haven't read yet. It's the second half in verse 14. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Why did this happen? Humanly speaking, it was a clever plan. From God's perspective, it worked because God said so. It was his plan. Here's the real mover and shaker in all of this. Fifth, God, the ultimate orchestrator. The rest of this story is about God and his orchestration, hidden as it is behind the scenes. That theological comment in verse 14, that the Lord ordained to defeat the quote-unquote good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm to Absalom, that one sentence is in the midst of a whole lot of action and drama and suspense. And we know the theological truth of that that sentence in verse 14, even if it weren't there. We know that whatever happens, it's the Lord's plan. He does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth, and none can thwart his ways or hold back his hand. We we know that from other places in the Bible. We don't need it here. Oh, but praise God that it is here. Praise God for this reminder that in this muck and water, in this muck and mess and chaos of scheming and running and hiding, God has determined the end and his ways will not be thwarted. Notice how from chapter 16 through the middle of chapter 17, what's stressed is the human side of things, the scene, the scary, the struggle, the unknown future. 
Verse 14, the second half, the theological comment, of course, stresses the divine, not the human. The unseen, not the seen. The sure, the end. But right after it, verse 15 and following, it goes right back to the seen, the human, the unknown, the scary, the almost, the what if. Let's read verse 15 and following and notice the extremely suspenseful and dramatic and even slow-going storytelling. This is the slowest storytelling in all the books of Samuel. Verse 15. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Himaz were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Boharim, who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. They'd made it to safety, and just barely, just barely on many accounts, right? Just barely, being seen, almost being caught, hiding in a well. How do you even hide in a well? I'm, I'm picturing arms shimmied and legs out in this well to hold yourself up. I've seen it in movies. I wouldn't want to do it, though. And yet there they are, laying low, hiding. Some woman, who is she to side with the right guy and not the wrong guy? But she does, and she lays a blanket over this well. Even better, she puts some stuff on it like the blanket had been there for days or months. Nothing to see here. And they move along. Nothing to see here. From the, the plan that, what's the guy's name again? <laughs> this is really too bad of me. Uh, seriously, help me out here. No, not Hithphel, the other one. Hishai, yeah. From the plan of Hishai that, that they go with. I told you there are a lot of names here. From the plan of Hishai that they go with to here, looking for these messengers, not finding them, it feels very Obi-Wan-ish to me. There are no droids to see here. There are no droids to see here. God is in it. It looks so scary, so suspenseful, so almost, so nail-biting, and yet God's in it. 
it brings it to this pass here in verse 23. Look, look at here. Remember, David prayed that Ahithophel's counsel would be brought to nothing. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. It's Judas-like, isn't it? A treacherous traitor who, in the end, hanged himself. Ahithophel must have known that he was done for. There was no hope. The sway was now going in the other direction, and there was no going back. To David's side, Judas seemed to as well believe that he picked the wrong side and there was no going back and no hope for him. How do we know what the right and wrong sides are in all of this? Well, in the book of Acts, the preachers there, they, they talk about how the resurrection proves what the right side is. That what Jesus said is true, that he is God's son and the son of David. I love it in Acts 4 when they pray and they quote from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot in vain? God will set his king on his holy hill, and he has. They say after that, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, with Herod and Pontius Pilate and Gentiles and Jewish people all, there to do whatever your hand, God, had predestined to take place. You want to see wickedness in God's glory at the same place? Let me just look at the cross. Where the greatest wickedness in this world has ever been displayed. And yet, God's sovereign, good, saving purposes are there as well. He's good. In the middle of all the muck and chaos of these chapters, there's the theological comment that we the readers get, but those in the story don't. And so they have to walk by faith and not by sight. They have to trust God. It's like that for us, isn't it? Isn't it like this in your life where you know that God is sovereign and good and wise? You know that there is an end. You're not sure how it's going to turn out. Oh, but you, you wring your hands and you bite your nails and the ulcers come and the nights are sleepless. It seems so uncertain. We forget that he's there and what he's ordained will come to pass. It might seem scary, but we can't just focus on the scene. We walk by faith and not by sight. It might seem unsure, but we know it's sure because we have a sure God who proves himself over and over and over again, not just in the preservation of King David, but in the crucifixion of Jesus and in the resurrection of Jesus. It seems to us these days, I'm sure it's this way for every People in any place, in any time, is fallen people in this world. But for us, it's errands and tasks and resumes and conversations and sports and driving around, making plans, doing taxes, working through a to-do list. It seems as though it's all here and now. It's just the scene. 
And yet in any one of those, however mundane and however common it is, God is sovereign and good and wise and not one hair will fall from your head. He will do you good with all of his heart and soul and mind. He, he does us good even when we don't see it. And it doesn't matter who's against us. They can't stop what he's doing. Psalm 33 tells us that the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Keep that in mind as we go into an election season where politicians will make all kinds of promises that we all know from experience will be nothing but dust in the air in just months to follow, let alone the years to follow. But God makes plans, and he sticks to them, even when it looks like he's slow or, or has forgotten. In Isaiah 46, God says, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. In this story, we've got Ziba trying to manipulate David for his own gain. It's pathetic, though. You've got Shimei, who thought he knew the mind of God and could be his messenger to call down curses you got Absalom, for a while looking strong, having the counselors, having the concubines, the soldiers, the schemes. And yet you can see him being a confused person as well. I need more counselors. Oh, okay, that's good. What else you got? You, you give me something else. Okay, we'll go with that one. Wrong one? Oh, no. Ahithophel gambled on the wrong king. And even though he had the better plan to get King David, people wouldn't listen to him. They went with the other plan. He knew what would have worked better, but he was a frustrated man who can't get what he wants to happen. And in the end, it's not even worth living for, he thinks. But then you have Hushai, who back in chapter 15 wanted to stay with David. But David said, no, 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 no. I have an important mission for you. It reminds me that we have a mission that we don't always want to do. We want to be in the comfort of the king. We want to go home to heaven now or for him to meet with us and have eternal devotions and quiet time. But he, he has a mission for us. Hushai's mission was risky. Imagine that. To go be a double agent with the ruthless Absalom. Our mission is often risky, too. It may not mean losing life, but we can lose friends for sure. Certainly lose face, lose comfort. But though Hushai's mission was necessarily using deception, our mission is so much better because it is utterly about and rooted in nothing but truth. 
We're not trying to deceive the world about Jesus. We are trying to give them the truth and tell it to them as plainly and honestly as possible. Hushai's mission was, for the time, just for the king's protection at that moment. But our mission is for the king's glorious advancement in this world for all eternity. What a mission we have. What a great God we have. I know chapter 17 has more verses that we haven't looked at, and I'll talk about those a little bit next week. We don't need to do any more names this morning, do we? <laughs> we'll do those with a fresh start next week. But, but I'll just tell you this. Here's how chapter 17 and into chapter 18 goes. David's been protected. His people are now united. Some people come with provisions for them. They're provided for, and God is preparing them as they're nourished with beds and rest and food of all kinds. God is preparing them for what's next because he's not done. They're not done. The story goes on. There's going to be a battle. They'll go to battle. A horrible civil war. But the right side will win out. The right side will win out. God will win. In the meantime, let's trust that though he moves in mysterious ways, it's his wonders that he is performing behind the scenes. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that we would know this Jesus, the King, believe upon him and be saved. Keep walking with him, though we're assaulted with insults or even with sticks or stones or with guns or swords. Let us keep walking with him because he's the Lord and there is no other because only he has the words of eternal life. Sustain us with those words, Lord Jesus. Help us to marvel at your marvelous ways in this world which we can interpret through the truth and examples that we see in your word. Help us to marvel that you're sovereign and you're sovereign even in the hurt and the pain. You have purposes we can't imagine. And we'll know something more about those purposes in the days and years and eons to come. We thank you for that. Amen.